You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, we're continuing uh, Romans chapter 9 this morning, okay? So, uh, some tough slogging through these texts. Uh, Sometimes uh, people want to just kind of ignore these verses, but they're important as we're going to see as we study this morning. Uh, One of the things that we need to continually keep in our mind every week as we kind of study this text is, is all of what Paul is saying in Romans 9 through 11 is overflowing out of this question is, of whether or not God's word has failed, uh, whether or not God has failed in his promise to the people of Israel. I mean, as, as, as the gospel is going forth at that time, a lot of Gentiles are getting saved, but not a lot of Jews. And so has God turned his back on the people of Israel? That's the question they, they had. If God had made a covenant with Israel, how come so many were not yet saved? through this Messiah, Jesus, if he truly was the Messiah. And we remember in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, Paul begins by saying, look, I love you. He wants to encourage them and, 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 and to show them the depth of his love for them by saying, look, if, if it was possible that I be damned and you be saved, that, I would do that. And then he makes a statement in verse 6, but it is As God's word failed, he says this, clear statement, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And what you'll notice as we're going through chapters 9 through 11 is that he's continually going back to the word, to the Old Testament, over and over and over again to say, look, this is God's way. This is the way it's always been. And so as we we looked at uh, verses 6 through uh, 13 last weekend, we've seen that God chose Isaac out of the family of Abraham. There was Ishmael and other sons, but he chose Isaac. And not only did he choose Isaac, but he chose Jacob. And, and, he, and he says that he chose Jacob before anything had ever been done, before any works had been performed. And so salvation does not come through your ethnicity. Salvation does not come through your works. Salvation comes through God and God alone through him choosing you. And you may have some questions as a result of that. And what's interesting is that Paul anticipates your questions. In fact, as we're going to look at the text this morning, we're going to see three questions that are answered as a result of, of, of this, this understanding from verses 6 through 13. But one of the things that we're going to be wrestling with in this text today, but also you know, really throughout Romans 9 through 11, is this whole tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and it really, that it's shone more brightly than ever when it comes to salvation. What is man responsible for, and what is God responsible for? And there's this tension, and as humanity, what do we want to do with the tension? Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of the tension. So here's what we tend to do. We, we, we tend to either focus solely on God's sovereignty, and, uh, so much so, you, you could have been, uh, if you were in Hudson Taylor's church, 
when he uh, said, hey, I want to go to China to, 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 to proclaim the gospel to the people of China, they're like, if they're going to be saved, God will save them, right? That's, that's a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Anybody think that that's a good plan? That, they, you know, just leave it 100% to God, and if they're going to be saved, they're going to get saved. Really, you and I don't have to do anything. Anybody think that's a good idea? Well, why? Because there's a whole lot of verses about what? Go into all the world and make disciples. Proclaim the good news. Like, that's our responsibility. God has given that to us. Or, okay, well, yeah, I think there's something about God's sovereignty, but really it comes down to you and I getting out on the streets, and we have to have a persuasive kind of gospel to, to convince people about this truth. And so really, we know God helps, but really, ultimately, it's about us and our message. That's the, that's the kind of thing that we do. We want to take the tension out of the text. But as we're going to see today, Paul's okay with the tension. He, he does not, as you're going through here, you're just kind of waiting for him to kind of relieve the tension, but he does not relieve the tension. The tension is there, and if you and I are to be faithful as believers, we need to allow the tension to be there, to remain there. To, to emphasize one over the other is to neglect what God's Word actually says. So, Spurgeon, he's always good for a quote, right? I mean, you're just like, this is, look up everything Spurgeon and you're good to go. But, but, but he really sums it up well. He says that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that, can, that, we can, that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is in our weak judgment. And we're going to see this in the text this morning. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught, I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is uh, for, foreordained, that is true. And if I find that in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two tr truths can ever contradict each other. All right, so... As we get into the text this morning, let's embrace the tension, all right? But more than that, let's ask God to help us as we continue to study this. Let me pray for us. God, we, we do look to you. And, and God, we would admit quickly that we are fallible, that our hearts are deceitful, that, that Lord, left to ourselves, Lord, we would not understand any of these things. And so, God, we come before you and we cry out asking, God, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. God, thank you that for those, of you, those who are your children this morning, that you have given your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to counsel us, to help us to grow in our understanding of you. And God, as we, as we study this morning, I pray that we would be better worshipers. God, as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see your characteristics revealed over and over again. And Lord, may the proper thing happen in that, Lord, as we understand these things, that we would worship you. For you alone deserve honor, praise, and glory. And so, Lord, now we pray that you would lead this preacher, help him to speak your word clearly. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone got a Bible?
Anyone not have a Bible this morning? Okay. All right. Romans 9. Let's look at it together. Romans 9, 14 to 24. Romans 9, 14 to 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known in his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Three serious questions that arise from Paul's teaching. Three serious questions that arise from Paul's teaching. First, is God unjust? Is God unjust? As, they, as he's thought about this, the, uh, as he's taught this over and over and over again, you can be sure Paul has had a common denominator as far as the questions that come his way. And so he anticipates what has been brought to him over and over again. And the first question is, if God is choosing certain people and not choosing others, is he unjust? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God chooses some for salvation and passes by others, then is that not the implication that he must be unjust? Paul understands how shocking his statement has been to many people, but he's okay with that. And he anticipates this question and he asks it, is there injustice on God's part? As I shared last weekend, it's not uncommon. I was, as my personal testimony, is when you hear about God choosing one and not choosing the other, the, the automatic reaction for me anyways, and maybe you were different, was just like, well, that doesn't sound right. But, but he's, 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 he's okay with the questioning here. If you thought last weekend that doesn't sound fair, you're not alone. Is there not injustice on behalf of God if he does not take into account human works when he decides to save? Is it not unjust that God does not save based on ethnicity? Yarbar puts it like this, if only children of promise receive his blessing, is this not discriminatory and unacceptable to human assumptions and expectations? So Paul answers the notion that there is injustice on God's part by once again turning back to the Old Testament scriptures. But he begins by saying what? Is there, is there injustice on God's part? He's like, by no means. If you got ESV, other translations, not at all. 
May it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. He wants you to come out clearly like, look, there is no injustice with God. Don't even go there. The, the strongest terms possible, he is saying that is not what's going on here. Let me explain what's going on. Moose says this, Paul does not attempt to show how God's choice of human beings for salvation fits with their own choosing of God and faith. Quite the contrary, rather than compromising the apparent absolute and unqualified nature of God's election, he reasserts it with even stronger terms. So he first starts with Exodus 33. This is where he quotes from. Exodus 33, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now, it's, it's important to think about the context here. All right, so Exodus 32, Moses has been up on the mountain. And this has been this incredible time with the Lord. The Lord has literally written on stone the Ten Commandments. He's written the law to them. And time has come to back, come back to the camp. But it's been a while. And so the people of Israel have said, we don't know what happened to Moses. He's probably dead. So Aaron, help us out here. So what do they do? They take all their jewelry. They throw it in some kind of heat, obviously, and they form a golden calf. And they say, look, this was the God who brought you out of Egypt. A lot of, obviously, worship of uh, wrongly, idolatry. There was likely a whole lot of uh, sexual promiscuity going on at the same time. There's like this whole mess is going on. And so as Moses is coming down the mountain, he hears this noise. And he's like, oh, like, what's going on? And God says, they've turned their back on me. And what I'm going to do now is wipe them out. Right? I'm, just, I'm giving you the rough translation, okay? I'm going to wipe them out, and Moses, I'm going to build the people through you. And Moses is like, that's a great idea. I've always wanted it to be through me. Is that what Moses does? Well, Moses does what every person who's close to the Lord does, just as we've seen a couple weeks ago with Paul. He pleads on behalf of his people. And he says, look, Lord, Lord you can't do that. Like, what, what will the Egyptians say? Oh, yeah, they just brought him out into the wilderness to take care of him and kill his people. Like, what about your name, God? And, and, and what about the covenant you, you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What, what about that? And so he brings that before him. And, um, and God says he will relent. He won't wipe them out. So Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what's going on. And obviously, Moses showing up does not shut everything down. And so he says, whoever's with me, you come stand with me. Whoever's on God's side, you come over here. And so the sons of Levi come over, and they all take a sword. And they go out through the camp, and 3,000 are struck down with the sword. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll send an angel with you to go before you. And Moses is like, that's, that's not enough. It's not enough. God, if your presence does not go with us, then don't send us. Our whole thing about 
our distinctiveness is the fact that you're with us, that your presence is with us. So if your presence isn't with us, then don't send us. And so that's where we get to. Oh, by the way, end of the Exodus 32, all we're told is that, oh yeah, and a plague went out amongst the people too, so we're not sure how many people died of that plague, but there was people who killed, were killed by the sword, there was people who were killed by the plague. So, so God didn't wipe everybody out, but, but some people did die because of their sin. And so Moses pleased with the Lord that his presence would go with him. And so we pick it up in Exodus 33, 17. Uh, the verse that we're, we're focusing on this morning is verse 19, uh, which is what uh, Moses, or sorry, uh, Paul quotes from Moses. But going back to verse 17, again, write these things down, look them up for yourself later. But context-wise, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So he says, I, I will do it. I will do it because of our relationship, Moses. I will, I will, my presence will go with this people. I will remember the covenant that I have made with them. And Moses' response is, is really interesting. He says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Piper says here, in other words, the magnitude of his request drives Moses to probe into the very heart of God, as it were to assure himself that God is in his deepest nature the kind of God who could pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for his inheritance. Like, is it true that you would be merciful? Is it true that you would forgive sin? And then we pick it up in verse 19, the verse that he quotes, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And we find out that, that in, in chapter 34 of Exodus, when God has this, he comes before him and he shelters him with his hand. Have you guys, you guys familiar with this text? When God shows him his presence, he obviously can't see him in his fullness or he would not live. And so he shelters them in his presence. But as he's passing by, it says this, the, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In response to Moses' request, the Lord shows him more of his glory. He reveals to him once again that he is a merciful God, that he is a God who pardons sin, but by no means will he allow sin to go unpunished. And so as we think about the context, not everybody was saved who committed the sin of idolatry on that day. 3,000 were struck down by the sword. We don't know how many were killed by the plague. But God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will be gracious with whom he will be gracious. It's his choice. This is the point that Paul is making here. It's his choice as to whom he will show that mercy to. Is God unjust? By no means. In fact, he is very merciful. 
Justice would have been what on that day? Justice would have been, you're right. Moses would be like, you're right, God. Get rid of them. They sinned against you. That's justice. But God is also a God of mercy. This is what's being highlighted here. Some died, 3,000 by the sword and others by the plague, but, but God chose to be merciful to the rest. Schreiner says this, God's righteousness is upheld because he manifests by revealing his glory both in saving and in judging. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, where's the focus? Is it on humans and what they do, their, their will, their exertion, or on God? Clearly, as he's <laughs> there's not a lot of ways to try to interpret this, clearly it's based on God's mercy. In other words, he decides. It's not based on humanity. They don't get to decide who receives mercy and who does not receive mercy. He decides. Boaz is this about mercy. There's something uniquely divine about mercy. No one deserves to be chosen, to be made holy, set apart, and once again fit for God's purpose. God's purpose in election is totally a function of the divine action called mercy. I mean, you think about yourself. How merciful are you? Somebody hurts you, somebody does something against you. Is your first reaction like, oh, I'm going to show mercy? That's not your first reaction. If you're in Christ, by God's grace, maybe you show mercy. But, but that's not who we are. God alone is merciful. It is, it is who he is. The fact that anyone is saved is due to God's mercy. Again, as we thought about this last weekend, Romans chapter 3 shows us what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks after God. No one. Not one. And so if someone is saved, it is due to his mercy. Because he's a merciful God, salvation exists. If God had not saved anyone, that would have been just. F.F. Bruce points out, if God were compelled to be merciful by some cause outside himself, not only would his mercy be so much the less mercy, but he himself would be so much less God. It's, it's wrapped up in his character, in other words. It's wrapped up in who he is. He is mercy. And as a result, we know mercy. Paul continues to highlight God's choice to do as he wills, right? So we've seen the side of salvation, right? He was merciful to those whom had sinned against him. But now he looks at the other side of things, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you went to Sunday school, again, you know the context here of a man named Pharaoh. For 400 years, Israel had been in Egypt. In their latter years, had not been so great, Right? enslaved, oppressed by the Egyptians. And they cried out to God, and God heard their prayer and sent Moses to be their deliverer. And as he, he came to Pharaoh requesting that the people be let go to go and worship him, what did Pharaoh say? 
It ain't happening, right? So God sends the first plague. Did that change anything? It did not change anything. Second plague, third plague, fourth plague, fifth plague, sixth plague. This is just before the seventh plague. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, where this is quoted from. And so Pharaoh is still clinging on to, he's in control. He will decide what will happen to the people of Israel. Not God, not Yahweh, this this God of the Israelites. He's in control. God makes clear he's in control. And he says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. I'm in control of your life that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We just study this in, in the summer, right? In the book of Joshua. After 40 years in the wilderness, what's still being talked about in Jericho? That God who was so powerful, who freed that people of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, did, like, think about what he did, those 10 plagues that, that they, were, they were stuck at the Red Sea and he just parted that. They went across and then he killed Pharaoh and his army in the sea. His name went throughout all the earth. His power was known throughout all the earth as a result of him raising up Pharaoh for this time and for this purpose. God was brought glory through his wrath and power against Egypt. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Anybody find that verse hard? That's a, that's a hard verse, right? Let's embrace the tension. Let's embrace the truth. Paul is pointing out once again that God is free to do what he wants. In the same way that he chose to show mercy in the case of Pharaoh, he chose to harden his heart. It is important to note that Paul is intent on showing us that the giving of mercy or the hardening is, again, based on God's decision to do as he wills. Paul, if he was trying to soften this whole thing, what could he have said? Okay, well, look, guys, if you look, Five times Pharaoh hardened his heart, and five times I hardened his heart. It was, you know, so it was kind of a back and forth thing, but ultimately it was Pharaoh's fault. That's not what he's saying here. Clearly, this is not what he's saying here because of what we're going to, the next question that's coming up. You know, he's saying God has the choice as to whom he will harden and whom he will not harden. God has the choice to save whom he wants to save. Moose says this. Paul's whomever he wishes shows that God's decision to harden is his alone to make and not constrained by any consideration having to do with a person's status or actions. Both the hardening and in the showing mercy, God has brought glory in both situations, right? Through his power and wrath against Egypt, he's brought glory. Through his showing mercy, he's brought glory, We'll see that that the the result of the hardening of the Israelites, Romans chapter 11, resulted in what? The salvation of many Gentiles. And that the, the, the good news is sent out all over the earth as a result of it. And we're witnessing, we're still benefactors of that today. 
God is glorified in his actions. Stott says this, we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, is ni- in neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy, it contains a mystery. An antinomy is like something that seems like it's contradictory. It contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. So the assertion of, of the fact that God has mercy on whom he has mercy and hardens whom he, has, whom he will harden brings about what? Another question. We've decided what? Is God unjust? Well, you know, he's not unjust. He is God and he is merciful. Is he unfair? That's his second question. Is he unfair? And with that, then how can we be, unbla- how can we be blamed? Seems like this is unfair. How can we be blamed? Is this is not exactly what he says in verse 19. You will say then, why does he st- still find fault? Who can resist his will? Now, Paul has experienced these kind of people. And, and to kind of just help us to understand his response to these questions, we need to understand that this is not the kind of person who is genuinely confused and who's trying to work things out. This is not that kind of person. This is the kind of person who's like, I don't like God's ways. If what you're saying is true, that he hardens whom he will harden, and if he's being merciful to whom he is merciful, then he needs to answer to me. Because I don't think that his ways are right. I do not think his ways are just. Why, why would humanity be blamed at this point? Why are they held responsible if it's all about what God decides in showing mercy or in hardening? You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Moo puts it like this, Paul never offers here or anywhere else a logical solution to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that he creates. Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and in hardening and of human responsibility without reconciling them. We would do well to emulate his approach. So he's holding the tension. What he's about to do is not going to relieve any tension. Okay? So why does he find fault? Why does he, who can resist his will? Verse 20. He, Paul's no longer on the defensive. Now he's on the offensive. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Stop and think about it just a second. Who is God and who are you? Do you really think that God is answerable to you in your judgment? It's kind of a crazy thinking, isn't it? Let's be honest, in this room, we may have crossed this line in our lives where where, where we think that God owes us something. I mean, you think about Job, right? Now, to be fair, the guy who was in a really rough situation had been through all kinds of of sorrow and pain and misery, and he had these three friends helping him out, and he was just like, if I could just talk to God, 
If I could just present my case before him, guess what? I would be found innocent. And implying what? God would not be found innocent. And so God shows up with Job. And what does he do? Hey, Job, before I answer any of your questions, let's just think about who I am. And he talks about creation, the wonders of creation, the power of creation. And Job's like, uh, yeah, I got nothing. Like, what happens there is like, hey, this is, we're not equals here, Job. We're not equals where you kind of, you know, you have your perspective and I have my perspective and, oh, I'm not so sure who's right here. I'm God and you are creation. That's, that's what goes on. And so Job, what does he do? Job 42, 5 and 6, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I, I, now that I see you in all your, your glory and grandeur, how could I ever question you? And so he repents. He, he does what he ought to. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? He continues, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Paul breaks down the relationship between God and creation. He is the molder. He is the creator, and you are the molded. You are the creation. You are an object that God has created. He is the one who ultimately knit you together in your mother's womb. That's, it's him. He's the one who did it. Can you imagine whipping something up in shop class, and then whatever you made in shop class is like, hey, why did you make me like this? I mean, that's, that's what he's saying here. Should, should something that has been molded say to its molder, like, why did you make me like this? How ridiculous of a notion. He's quoting here from Isaiah 29, 16. Isaiah 29, 16. Isaiah says this, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to, to its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? What, what a ridiculous notion. You've turned everything upside down to think that you, humanity, would ever be able to sit on the throne and judge God and his actions. He continues, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does the potter not have every right to do what he wants with that lump of clay? Does God not have every right to do with creation as he pleases? Again, can you imagine the clay telling the potter that he, what he must do with the clay? It seems it's so foolish. Again, he's quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? God is the one who is sovereign over creation and has the right to do what he wants. So what is meant, so, so the question then is, what is meant one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Well, in light of our context, it would seem right to understand that God has the right to show mercy to some and hardens others. 
Hodge says it's like this. It is God as moral governor who is, who is brought into view here. It is nowhere suggested that God has the right to create sinful human beings in order to punish them, but rather that he has the right to deal with sinful human beings according to his good pleasure, either to pardon or to punish them. To pardon or to punish. As Romans 3 again makes clear, we are all headed to damnation. And it is up to him to choose whether he will pardon or whether he will punish. He is the one who is over it all. He is God and he can do as he pleases. Could it be my wrestling? Could it be my lack of understanding is the problem here and not God? I mean, just consider. I see some young ones in the back there, right? Your two-year-old got to the place where they can talk to you, and now they demand that you live by their standards and their understanding. Like, how would that go, right? Would you be like, okay, sure, that sounds great. I should answer to you, a two-year-old, because you know so much, right? Like, that's ridiculous. Well, take that and then multiply that by a million times, because that's our knowledge compared to his knowledge. We, we have no clue what we're even talking about. And so we need to get down low and understand that God is not unfair. He's not unjust. And when he says, I will harden whom I harden and I will have mercy on him, I will have mercy, that we ought to worship him as a result of that. Not question him. Schreiner says this, how can finite, frail, and weak human beings venture to dictate to God how the world should run? Who do we think that we are that we would presume to call God to account and pass judgment on him? When you say it out loud, it sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? But how many times are we caught in that trap? Well, thirdly, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about God? Verses 22 to 24. So Paul now is drawing to conclusion the, the, the idea of this potter making vessels, of one for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Verses 22 and 23, there, there are parallel accounts. We're seeing that through God's power and His wrath, there are certain things that are being revealed about him. Through his mercy, there are certain things that are being revealed to him. In verse 23, he says in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has been patient towards those vessels of wrath, just as he was with Pharaoh. I mean, were ten plagues really needed? Like, did God need to do that? Did, did he need to then allow them to be pursued to the Red Sea? Did he need to do any of that? But, but what happened as a result of that? 
his patience resulted in more glory and more honor being bestowed upon him, upon God. Paul also may have in mind here a passage that we studied earlier in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Romans 2, 4 and 5, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In the same way that the world clearly saw God's wrath and power in redeeming people out of Egypt, he will show his wrath and power on the day of judgment that is coming on the world. We do not know the day or the hour, but this day is coming. Judgment is coming upon the world. And God in his patience, we think about 1 Peter 3, sorry, 2 Peter 3, and his patience towards those who are on this earth, they're, they're, they're storing up wrath from themselves. Stott says here, the implication seems to be that his forbearance is delaying the hour of judgment will not only keep the door of opportunity open longer, but also make the ultimate outpouring of his wrath the more dreadful. It will, will, will exemplify his power. It will show his wrath for what it truly is. The wrath would come on, sorry, the wrath could come on on all of us immediately, right? All who have rebelled against him. But God demonstrates his patience towards those who are prepared for destruction due to their sins. His wrath and power will be seen. But then, against that backdrop, that darkness, that, 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 that judgment that's coming, we see also in order, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Because God has been patient, his mercy has been shown upon this earth. You can think about the flood. God was patient. Noah didn't throw that ark up in like five minutes, right? It took like a hundred years for that thing to be built. God was patient. And at that moment, he didn't even have to do that. We know, like clearly, Noah was not without sin. We see that quite clearly afterwards. But God was merciful and saved a remnant. And God is still merciful today. The fact that he has not yet come back, what? There's still more vessels of mercy to be revealed. The vessels of mercy will reveal the riches of the glory of God for all the world to see. Who are these vessels of glory? There are those which, what? God has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, it takes us back to Ephesians 1, chosen before the foundation of the world. It takes us to Romans 8, 29, predestined. God has chosen those whom he will show mercy to. Stott says here, the preeminent disclosure will be, the riches, be of the riches of God's glory. And the glory of his grace will shine the more brightly against the somber background of his wrath. Glory is, of course, shorthand for the final destiny of the redeemed in which the splendor of God will be shown to them, to and in them, as first they are transformed and then the universe. Like you just think about that last picture that will be shown. God's mighty wrath and judgment being poured out on those who have rebelled against him, those who are in sin against him. 
And against that backdrop, you will see all those who have been redeemed, those vessels of mercy joining him and celebrating with him. Those who have been shown mercy, they will look and they'll be like, that could have been us. That could have been us if we did not have a merciful God. But praise God, he saved me. And on the other side will be those who are the vessels of judgment, knowing that there was a God, but never repenting, never turning to him, and they will see what they have missed out on. And then we'll spend all of eternity in each of those camps. And we will get to praise God, vessels of mercy, we'll get to praise God for all of eternity. He concludes by saying this in verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Who are the vessels of mercy? There's some who are Gentiles, there's some of Jews, and we're going to look at this more next week as we look at the drama of salvation. So what are we to do with this text? We've been challenged by what would seem two contradictory things, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But God is showing, sorry, but Paul is showing us that both are consistent with God's character and God's plan. This morning we've also studied, or sorry, what we've also studied has reminded us of who God is. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of power. He's a God of patience, God of glory, God of mercy. We need to embrace him for all that he is. Where, where, where we get off in humanity is when we start saying, well, I only like these attributes of God, and so I'm just going to really focus on these and ignore all of those. That, that's not an option for you and I. And so we need to be warned that God is a God of wrath. His wrath will come against all sin. All sin must be punished by God. We need to acknowledge that he is a God of power. That, that, I don't know about you, but that, that, that encourages my heart this morning, that he's a God of power. Because sometimes it seems like all of God's enemies are winning the day. But God's plan always comes to fruition because he's a God of power. He's a God of patience. He is patient for a season, but he will not wait forever. I want to just I want to encourage you this morning, if you're kind of like on the fence, like I think maybe one day I would give my life to Christ, but right now I'm kind of just doing my own thing, do not assume upon his patience. For one day he's coming and he will judge all sin. Come to him as the God of mercy. God of mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. If God would have given us what we deserved, he would have destroyed all of humanity a long time ago. But he is merciful. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath for your sins so that you might know the riches of his glory. I pray that everyone here today can confess that. They're like, yeah, I know him as the God of mercy. I still remember the day where my eyes were opened and, and, and I turned from my sin and, I, and now I live for him because of his grace, because of his mercy in my life. Lastly, he is the God of glory. He is the God of glory. 
I love what Boyce had to say. Man's chief end is to glorify God, right? You see that in the Westminster Catechism? But we might also say that the chief end of God is to glorify God. Why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy. All that he does brings him glory. Whether that's hardening the heart of a man like Pharaoh or saving vessels of mercy like you and I. He receives all the glory, all the honor. Let us praise him for who he is. Let me pray. Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning, we once again recognize that you are great, you are mighty, you are powerful. Lord, we come low before you, recognizing that we are the creation. Lord, what a what an awesome thing that you, mighty, powerful God, would show mercy to us. What a wonder. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. But you sent your son to die that we might have life. Lord, truly your ways are not our ways. Truly your thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And so God, help us to embrace the truth which we've learned today. Lord, I pray for, for hearts that are wrestling. God, would you help them not to jerk the wheel one way or the other, but God, to live in this tension which we see in the text. God, may they embrace you for all who you are and not try to make a God of their own making. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you for salvation, so rich and free through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's that which we celebrate now. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.